Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on The Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Venture this weekend, we finished the Marvel series. And I've been so appreciative all throughout this series. Those of you who've emailed, you've shared your stories, and especially those of you who've been willing to go on camera. Uh, Dwight and Mary, thank you for sharing your story. Just to hear the miracles of what God has done in your story and in your life that continue today. And throughout all of this, we've been looking not only what God did in history when he walked on this planet, but what he's still doing. The amazing ways that he shows up. In this series, we've been looking at the book of John, and John just picks a few of Jesus's miracles. Uh, there's only about seven or eight listed in the book. And he said he picked those specific ones that we would believe in him, that we would really believe that he did what he came to do. And last week, we celebrated the greatest miracle with Easter. But you know, there's one more story in this book, one more miracle that I purposely skipped because I wanted to finish the series with it. Because in it, we're going to see a man who goes on a journey. It's a journey where he receives sight. But even beyond that, not just physical sight, it's spiritual sight as well. Uh, read with me. If you got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 9. We're going to go through the text. John tells the story better than I can. But as we go through it, you look at it. Jesus passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now again, this shows a lot of their thinking. Frankly, it shows the thinking of the world today. They, they see a man, and he was born blind, and there's the natural assumption that somebody did something wrong. And so either his parents sinned, and there was even a thought that a child could sin in the womb. He did something before he was even here that caused him to be blind. And if you look at it, there's a propensity that we have in the world today. It's the sense of karmic justice. That somehow if you did something wrong, then something wrong happens to you. Or if you experience something wrong, you can trace it back to something wrong. And so good people should only have good things and bad people have bad things. Now, we know this isn't true. We know this isn't how God works. We know it's because of, of sin, because of death that came because of our choices that we experience any of these tragedies. But Jesus explicitly addressed this. He said it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Don't blame anybody. Don't be looking for the blame in it. In fact, it's that the works of God might be displayed in him. God's going to do something in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. And, and this phrase here, he says, as long as I'm in the world... I am the light of the world. I'm going to show everyone I'm the light of the world. And, and before we jump into the story, this is such an important principle as we think about this context, as we think about wrestling, because I, I think it's important for us, when you experience tragedy, when you experience sickness or death, when something goes wrong, we are just like the disciples. We're just like the culture of that day. We're looking so quick for something to blame. We immediately move to the why. Why did this happen? And I want you to notice what Jesus does here. He, he doesn't answer the why. And I've told you throughout this series, there's a lot of the mysteries of God I don't understand. The ways he works, the ways he doesn't work at times. 
And, and so God doesn't always answer the why, but there's a place to not just focus on the why, but move to the what. Here's what I mean in that. You see the points. In tragedy, we can focus on why it happened, or we can focus on what God can do through it. And there's a choice here. It's a hard choice. And anytime you've experienced tragedy, anytime you go through a hard time, all of us wrestle with the, the why. Why, God? Why did this happen? But you can get locked up in that if you don't make a choice to go, I'm not going to keep trying to answer something that can't be answered. The why question, you'll never discover why. But I can move to the what. What do you want to do with this, God? What do you want to do through this? And here's the thing you can know if you're a child of God. Here's the promise we have of Scripture in that. In any and every circumstance, God can work for his glory and our good. Jesus says, I'm working in this man's life. You guys want to know why? I want to tell you what I'm doing right now. And I'm working in a way that I can bring glory to God, but he'll also bring good in the circumstance. And I would encourage you, I just say, if you're experiencing maybe a season in life, or maybe you've experienced tragedy, or you find yourself wrestling with that why, it's important if you'd make the choice to trust God and say, maybe I don't know why, but I'm going to trust that you're doing something here, God. It helps us frame our expectations that we, we don't live life expecting that it will be trouble-free or when trouble comes, we, we just get so disappointed in it, it's hard to get out of it. I, I was reminded of the story. Uh, David Haju is a reporter and uh, one night he was in a jazz club and he would report kind of on the arts beat and different things. And he had the opportunity to hear the jazz trumpeter Wynton Marsalis. And, and it, you know Marsalis is just one of the greatest in our country. And he was in, in this concert and, and he's about to finish it up and he was doing this old number from 1930 entitled, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. It's a sad song. And he's writing about it and listening to it. And he said it, it was like the trumpet was weeping. He was able to just milk every drop out of it. And he was down to that last line where just every note, I don't stand a ghost of a chance. And right in that moment, somebody's cell phone went off. Just this ugly ring. You know the ringtone. And the whole room kind of gasped. It was like the, the moment was gone. And Haju actually wrote on his pad where he was working on his story. He wrote, magic ruined. This ugly ringtone has ruined the magic of the moment. But here's where it really got interesting. Because Marcellus, the creative genius that he was, he immediately played the ringtone on his trumpet. Everybody laughed. But then he played it again. Then he changed the key. Then he started working off of it. He started composing on the spot, using the ringtone and weaving it. And before anybody had realized it, he wove the ringtone back to the original song. 
and he finished out those last two notes that were awaiting. And everybody looked at it in awe that he had the ability to take what was ruined and create something beautiful, even magical, in that moment. You know, this is just a glimpse of the creativity and the ability our God is able to do in our lives. Guys, events will come, and it feels like the moment is ruined. Or, or maybe you're at a place where you go, yeah, I've experienced something in my life, and it's never going to get better. It doesn't change the pain of that. It doesn't change what happened to you. But you've got to trust that our God is able to take even these hard, ugly events and weave them into something beautiful in you and through you. That's what we're going to see in this story. Doesn't change the fact this guy went through the pain of being blind from birth and he's an adult. Doesn't change all those years. But you're going to see God do something beautiful. And I would hope as you read this story, you would trust the same God that he can weave the events of your life too. As we read on in the story, read with me. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. And it's kind of a gross way of doing it. You go, Jesus, out of all the ways you could heal this guy, he knows exactly what he's doing here though. There's never a wasted motion. And it's always interesting to me, Jesus heals in all these different ways. He always knows exactly why he's doing what he's doing. He, he took the mud and he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so it doesn't even heal him right there. The man has to now go down to the pool of Siloam. He, he had to climb down by the temple, right next to the, the wall of Jerusalem. It's one of the pools. King Hezekiah put in a whole series of pools in order to protect the city if it was ever under siege. And so the pool of Siloam, the scent pool, the man is sent there. And he goes there and he washes. He's got, he's got to make his way down the step, down the hillside, get all the way down to the pool, wash this mud that Jesus has put across his face. And he washed, and here's the great news, he came back seeing. Now, again, sometimes we think these miracles are as simple as just kind of his eyes work. But you need to realize when, when someone has gone this many years without seeing, especially from birth, you know, now with medical technology, they're able to give sight to people that were blind from an early age or from birth. And, and there's this first euphoria that they can now see, but you you got to remember the brain has never been trained to process it. And so even though they can take in things, they struggle with sorting out what am I seeing? They struggle with facial expressions, struggle with, with processing in it. In fact, a lot of people that have been through that, they feel like they're caught in no man's land because they were so used to using their other senses before. And now with sight, they don't know how to process it. And a lot of them go from euphoria to discouragement because it's a long learning curve to be able to process it. See, here's the amazing thing when Jesus heals. We saw it with the man who was lame from birth. He didn't just heal the legs. He healed the whole pathway in the brain as well. And it's not just the healing of the eyes. This guy comes back seeing. He's processing everything. J Jesus heals the whole. He puts the ability there 
all the way from the eyes in the brain to be able to process all of it, to be able to interact with it. Unbelievable miracle. So much so that the, the people around can't really believe it's this guy. Is that the same guy we've always known? His neighbors don't believe it at first. And, and then someone turns him in to the Pharisees. And remember that group that they were didn't like Jesus? They're very rigorous about the law, especially their laws. And so they call the man in. Read with me. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed. Notice how many times they keep talking about this mud that Jesus made and put on his eyes. I washed, and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Now, we faced this before with some of the other stories, where when Jesus heals, a lot of times he does it on the Sabbath day. And remember, God had very explicit laws about the Sabbath, what you could and couldn't do. But not only that, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had added to those laws. They'd come up with their own rules. Do you know they actually had a rule that said you could not make a medicine or even an eye ointment on the Sabbath? That was considered work. If you created a salve, and, and that's basically what Jesus had did, done. He had gone made mud, created an ointment, a salve. He, he knew exactly what he was doing. This is one of their rules, and they, they just say, you can't do it. And, and as you read these stories, it's almost like Jesus goes out of his way to expose their rules. Because I think part of it, he wants to expose the silliness and, and, and when you get trapped in legalism like that, what it does to life. And so they hear this. They don't even look at the miracle. They just hear, oh, he did that? He made it on the Sabbath? He's not from God. As you read on, but others said, well, they're struggling here. There's a group. There's a division even among the Pharisees. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? I mean, he actually healed a blind man. That's one of the main signs of Messiah. There was division among them. And so it continues on in the text with it. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Now notice, remember I said this guy's on a journey? He's on his own journey of discovery. And so as they're talking about it, he looks at it and he goes, yeah, at the very least, Jesus must be a prophet. I mean, he, he's got to be something special there to be able to do this. As they continue, look at the next section with me. So the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight. So here's their next tack with it. They go, we don't think you were really blind. Now, he's been blind his whole life. But they're going to dispute that part. So they called the parents of the man who received his sight. They asked him, is this your son? And notice how they put it. Who you say was born blind. <laughs> Likely story. He's been blind his whole life, but they don't want to believe it. How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. They're sticking just to the facts. They're not going to interpret anything. And we'll see why in a moment. How he sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now, why, why are his parents being so nebulous? Look, look at the next verse. You'll see why. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, 
he was to be put out of the synagogue. Now, to be put out of the synagogue, that's basically, this is the original cancel culture right here. I mean, your life was canceled. You had no place to worship. Your social life was canceled. Your, your, your business would be impacted by it. everything. Synagogue was the root of the culture there. And, and these Pharisees controlled it. And this is their way of controlling them. And so his parents are scared to death. Think about it for a moment. They've already lived under the stigma that their whole life, their people thought they did something sinful that their child was born blind. I mean, they've lived under that stigma their whole life. Now their child finally sees and they're scared to death that they're going to get kicked out of their life. They're going to get canceled just for declaring what Jesus had done. You feel the power movement in all this? They're not done. They, they call the man back in. Read with me. For the second time, they called the man who'd been blind, and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Look at the irony of that. Jesus did this to bring glory to God. These guys can't see it for the life of them. They say the only way to give glory to God is to deny what Jesus did, to call him something he's not. The blind man answered, well, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, I see now. <laughs> they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? See, they're fixated on, we want to prove he did it the wrong way. They're so fixated on their rules. They're so fixated on their interpretation. They're so fixated on the way they see life, they can't see what's right in front of them. And, and the man finally's had it. He starts getting a little salty with them. I love this part. He says, I've told you already, you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And look at this line. Do you also want to be his disciples? See, he's kind of poking back at him a little bit now. He's had it. And, and I think there comes with that freedom. And he speaks with the freedom. I'm not going to be scared that you kick me out of synagogue. I'm not going to be scared with what you do to me. Good grief, I've spent my whole life blind. I see now. You're not going to intimidate me. Notice their response to this. And they reviled him. See, that means they're talking down to him now. It gets personal now. It's no longer about the debate. It's about who we are and who you are. They say you are his disciples, but we're disciples of Moses. We're kind of an important deal. We're a big deal. We know that God has spoken to Moses. As for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man answered, well, this is an amazing thing. Again, he's getting a little salty here. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. He goes, this is really strange. You keep calling him a sinner, but God opened my eyes. So God obviously listened to him. As he continues, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Don't you realize he has to be from God? Look at their response. They answered him. And, and, and this is where it just gets, you were born in utter sin. Do, do you feel their bias? Do, do you feel their just disregard? You're obviously a sinner. You were born blind. We know what kind of person you are. And you're going to teach us? And they cast him out. They're done with him. 
But Jesus isn't done with him. Look as Jesus goes and finds him. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man is the title for, for the Messiah? And I love how he answered. He said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, notice how he puts it first. You've seen him. You physically see him. And now it's the one who's standing in front of you. He's speaking to you. And I love this line. He says, Lord, I believe. But he doesn't just believe. He worshiped him. It wasn't just a step of belief in his life. It's a step of adoration. It's a step of where I'm going to build my life about you and around you. The Pharisees aren't done. Final verses. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, are we also blind? Oh, is that what you're saying? We're the blind ones? Notice what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, if you were actually blind, you'd have no guilt. If you actually had no way of seeing this, if you actually were blind to all this truth that I'm teaching you, if you actually had never heard this before, you'd be guiltless. But here's the problem. Now that you say we see, your guilt remains. See, your problem is, it's not that you can't see, it's that you won't see. See, you look at this story in it, and, and what you have, basically, is two different paths. One is a path to spiritual sight. We see it with the man every step of the way. But there's also a path to spiritual blindness. And this is the part that should be a warning for all of us. Because I think it's easy for anybody to be like the Pharisees. It's easy for us to read these stories and look at it and go, oh, the Pharisees, they're just the bad guys in these stories. The Pharisees wrestle with the same thing that all of humanity wrestle with, especially when it comes to the truth of Jesus Christ. In fact, as you read through the story, just several things stood out. If you want to be on a path to spiritual blindness, here's what you see in that. First, choose your interpretation of truth over God's revelation of truth. You choose your interpretation of truth over God's revelation of truth. See, they had interpreted what the Sabbath was supposed to be like, what was right, what was good, who was a sinner and who was not. They had taken God's good law, the, the things that he had laid out, and they had added all of their interpretations on top of it. And somewhere along the way, their interpretations mattered more to them than the actual revelation that God had given. And when Jesus stepped on the planet, where they literally have God himself in the flesh right in front of them. They can't see it. They can't embrace it. You guys, this happens today all the time. There, there are people all over the planet that have chosen their interpretation of truth because in reality, all of us have to interpret truth in one way or another. Some of us interpret it maybe through a religious grid. And so the different religions with that, some through a philosophical, some maybe you, you have a postmodern mindset that you go, man, can any of us really know truth? We, we've all been shaped by our own reality. You'll hear this a lot today. Truth is what you make it. I mean, even as you say that statement, if, if you believe that statement, 
What we're saying in that is, man, that's my interpretation of truth. It's whatever I want to make it. And I'm going to hold to that over what God has actually revealed is truth. I was reading a statement by a professor at Wellesley, uh, just a classical studies, uh, Mary Lefkowitz. She said this, she said, the notion that there are many truths might seem well-suited to a diverse society. She says, I mean, the idea that there's many truths, we like that in a diverse society. But when everyone is free to define truth as he or she prefers, the result is an intellectual and moral shouting match in which the people with the loudest voices are most likely to be heard. She wrote that 20 years ago. And I think today, you look around culture today, that's what it just feels like a shouting match where everybody's screaming, my truth, no, my truth. And, and even as I say that, you're probably looking at me and you go, well, Tim, who says that you have the truth? I go, guys, I'm as fallen as anyone else. That's why as humanity, I think we have to look somewhere. And where I look is the revelation of the living truth in the person of Jesus Christ. And with what he did in human history, I really believe he's the truth. And then I also look to the written truth of what God spoke in the Bible. And from what I've studied it, the consistency of it, the impact of it, I believe those are the revelation of truth from God. And so for all of us, we have to, in humility, step back and go, am I holding on to an interpretation of what I think is truth higher than what God really revealed? The second part of that path is when you use your power to force conformity at all costs. Notice what they did. They used their power as Pharisees. The power of the synagogue, the power of the culture, the power of religion, even. And they use that power in a way that people are scared and they're going to force people to conform to the way they see the world. And I'll say it again. We see this all over the place. The whole idea of cancel culture, that if you don't agree or if you don't say the right thing or you don't do the right thing, we no longer have a culture where we can disagree with each other. We just cancel each other. And we use all of our power to cancel. And, and when I say that, we got to be honest as Christians, we, we can do cancel culture too with those that we disagree with. Here's all I'm saying in this. I don't think people make faith steps because they've been forced into it through power. In fact, it's interesting to me, the most powerful person in this story is not the Pharisees with the power of the synagogue. It's Jesus. I mean, Jesus, in a moment's notice, could have looked at all of them and go, you don't believe in me? And made all of them blind. He could have used his miraculous power to force it on them. But he doesn't do that, does he? He uses his power to bring God glory and for the good of this man. And for the opportunity for all of us to look at it and take a faith step of belief, not through force. The third thing you see on this path is you assume you're right based on your status. And I see this with a lot of people. It's, it's like, well, I must be right. You know how educated I am. Do you know how successful I am? Do you know who I am? Now, we usually won't throw down that card as quick. But a lot of people think this. 
And I'll be honest, it, it's easy to have this mindset here in the Bay because people are so smart and so successful and, and so educated in it. And it's easy in all those things when the truth of who Jesus is, it can almost feel simplistic. And even when we talk about miracles like this, you might hear it and you just go, man, do you know who I am? Do you know how educated I am? You're asking me to believe that? Yeah, I was reading about Sir Kenneth Clark. He, he was a scholar. He did documentaries. He did the uh, television series entitled Civilization. And in his autobiography, is interesting, he was talking about he, he was not a Christian. Never embraced Christ. But at one point in his life, while he was doing this travels around the world, he went into this beautiful church, and as he described it, he had a spiritual moment there. I mean, he, he just felt like, he wrote, he said, my whole being was irradiated with this heavenly joy more than anything I'd had before. He described it as this flood of grace. And it prompted in him this, this sense of conflict of, oh, maybe there is a God. Maybe this whole area that I've written off could be true. But notice where he landed. He said, if I allow myself to be influenced by this, it's going to change. My family will probably think I've lost my mind. My, this could just be an illusion. He finally wrote in his autobiography, he said, I was too deeply embedded in the world to change my course at that point. And I read that with sadness. Because I do think God was trying to get his attention. Trying to get him to see this, this revelation of who he is and what he's done. Yeah, the final part of this is you just refuse to look and listen to what God is trying to show you. That's what Jesus said in those verses. He says, you guys won't look. It's not that you can't look, you won't look. You're like the little kid. You, you plug your ears and you close your eyes. You go, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to see this. And he says, it's not that you can't, you won't. And I see this today. People that choose to be spiritually blind, I, here's the three ways it shows up in it. One, through antagonism. That's the Pharisees. We don't like what you're teaching, Jesus. We, we don't like what you're doing. This doesn't match our system. This doesn't match our belief. This strips us of the power that we had. This makes us have to be humbled in a way that we don't like. We don't like it, and so we refuse to accept it. And there's a lot of people in the world today. They don't want to see it because they don't like it. And, and you may tell yourself, well, I just don't like church. I don't like the hypocrisy. I agree with you. There's a lot of things that maybe the church has done or people have done, but that doesn't change the fact of what Jesus has done. Now you've got to ask yourself, am I going to really look and listen to this? Or do I just allow my dislike of it to just stay antagonistic? You know, for other people, it's not antagonism. They're just ambivalent. I just feel conflicted about it. And even as I'm talking, maybe you feel a little ambivalent. There's part of this you go, yeah, maybe there's truth with it. I don't quite know what to do with it. You're a little bit like Kenneth Clark. You go, man, if I, if I really looked at it and embraced it, it would change my world too much. And so I just keep it at arm's distance. It'll just kind of stay out there. It's, it's out there. I haven't rejected it completely. But I'm ambivalent. And the problem with ambivalence, maybe it's not as vocal as antagonism. 
but it ends to the ends in the same place of blindness. You're no further along the path. And the final one I see is just apathy. I just I don't care right now. And, and I'll be honest, I see this with a lot of kids who've grown up in the church. We got a whole generation that have kind of embraced this is their way of not looking at it. I, I'm just apathetic toward it. I just don't care right now. Right now is the dangerous words on that. But no matter if you've been exposed to truth, no matter what you've seen in it, you just kind of have decided, I'm just not going to get too worried about it right now. And again, it seems like, well, I'm not antagonistic toward Christianity. You're still on the same path. It still ends up in the same place. And the reality in Scripture, when you're on a path to spiritual blindness, when you're on a path that what that is is really just a path of hardness. It's not your physical eyes, it's the eyes of your heart. And, and what the Bible describes that is, you're getting harder. And, and it may be overt, or it may be real gentle, but it's a path to the same place. That's why I'd encourage you I'd encourage you, you don't have to take that path. See, this story is about two different paths. We see the Pharisees on one, but I wanted to end it with the positive part. Look at the man. Look at the path to sight. But what does the path to spiritual sight look like? It's real simple in this. First, just trust Jesus enough to step out by faith. This guy trusted Jesus enough that when Jesus put mud on his face, he was willing to stumble down the hillside, get all the way to the pool of Siloam, and wash. He, he trusted Jesus enough to take the next step. And I don't know what that is for you. I don't know if he's asking you to step out in a new way. I don't know if he's asking you to step out in your relationships. I don't know if he's asking you to step out and maybe reach out to prayer with him for the first time. I don't know if he's asking you to step out and obey his word in a way that you haven't before and actually put his revelation over the way you've been doing life. But I would encourage you, however he's calling you to take the next step, trust him. Take it. And, and as you do that, the second part, don't be surprised or discouraged by opposition. Don't be surprised or discouraged if, if you face opposition. It's going to come. Somebody's not going to like it. I mean, this man found himself cast out of the synagogue. This man found himself ostracized. But when you end the passage, is he upset about that? No. You find him at the feet of Jesus worshiping. And guys, the reality in history of the church over the last 2,000 years most every group has faced opposition or persecution. We live in this anomaly in America in this time frame. We, we've lived under this blessing that as Christians, we, we've not faced that kind of opposition or persecution before. Now, we feel things changing in our country. The culture's changing. The tide's changing. And, and we get overly alarmed almost, like the world's coming to an end because people are turning against us. And I want to go back to it and go, man, go back and read through the Gospels. Go look at the early church. Look at people on this planet even today that they face that opposition because they've centered their lives around Jesus. Because remember, God is going to use it for his glory and for our good.
And we can trust him in that. Don't be discouraged. A final thing I would just say in it is humbly pursue Jesus as he will continue to reveal more to you. See, that's the key here. It's humility. Just like this man, he took his first step. The first step was to trust Jesus enough to go wash. But from that first step, notice his journey. He goes from seeing Jesus as the guy who healed me to Jesus is a prophet to Jesus is the son of man. He is the Messiah to Jesus is the one that I should worship. Do you feel his journey? And it's a journey of humility because he was open to what Jesus was revealing to him. Notice the guys who determined they already had all the answers, the ones who wouldn't see it, the ones who wouldn't be humble in any way. They were the ones who, in this passage, spiritually blind. And I think the same is true for us. Some of you have just started this journey, maybe last week at Easter. You took that first step, that step of faith. Here's what I would encourage you. Take the next step. Some of us have been on this journey for years. And, and I would encourage us, man, we, we need to be humble to make sure we've not allowed our interpretation to be more important to us than the truth Jesus is actually revealing. You know, I'll close with the story of a gentleman who received his sight. And it's an interesting story. You know, we've looked at these ones. I've told you about how a lot of people that have been blind, they struggle when they first receive it. Some of them get so frustrated, they, they revert back to not using their eyes. It's just too uncomfortable for him. Uh, this man, though, it, it, it's interesting. It's Michael May, at the age of 45, miraculously had an operation to receive sight. He'd been blind since he was three years old. So 42 years of blindness. And, and he had all the same struggles as everyone else. He struggled with depth perception, his brain processing. But the doctors noticed something different about Michael from the very beginning. He embraced it was going to be a lifelong journey. He embraced the adventure of it. That literally from the moment the bandages came off, he embraced it with a childlike sense of adventure and wonder. Then over and over again, he'd ask his wife, now what is this? Well, let me feel it. Oftentimes he would ride elevators. He just loved the sensation when the doors opened the joy of being back in the lobby again and being able to see it. He went out in the yard with his son and, and they would throw the ball even though he was terrible at it. He had no depth perception. But instead of begrudging the failure, he embraced the journey. And they said Michael was so different from so many patients because of that embrace. You know, guys, I think it's a great picture for us I think this blind man is a lot like Michael. He went on a journey, not just physically, but spiritually. You know, my prayer for each one of us, as we've looked at these miracles, as we've looked at the marvel of Jesus, that each of us would look at them. And the whole point of this series wasn't about believing in miracles. It's about believing in Jesus, about having a humility, maybe even a childlike faith, that no matter where you are on your journey, you would trust him enough to take the next step. Because here's what I know to be true. If you'll do that, 
He'll continue to reveal himself to you. He'll continue to guide you every step of the way. And, and I think for all of us, whether it's first steps or you've taken many steps, there's an adventure of faith in front of us with this person, Jesus Christ, who did miracles, who truly is a marvel, who truly is the one person like the blind man, we should not only believe, but worship. You pray with me. Father, I thank you. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for these stories. I thank you how people today are exactly like people back then. And we struggle with the same issues and we get caught up in the same things. I pray for each of us. Could we humbly embrace you for who you are, for how you revealed yourself? Could we humbly submit our lives to your truth, no matter what it costs? Could we embrace this journey of faith, recognizing that you are not only worthy of our belief, but also our worship? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.